You're listening to a Sin podcast made by young people at the Student Youth Network. For more Sin goodness, head to sin.org.au. Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The ceremony is about to begin. Bobby Krieger, guitar player. John Densmore, percussionist, 22 years old. Far out. Uh, Pamela Morrison, ornament. Raymond Daniel Manzarek. 1212 Jim Morrison, the god of rock. The guys at Network have told us that they have a little problem with the lyric, girl, we couldn't get much higher. They asked if you could say instead, girl, we can't get much better. Can you dig that? Girl, we couldn't get much higher. I love it when you sing to me. I'm the poet and you're my muse. Drinking blood. Mr. Morrison, you got too far. You're a poet, not a rock star. What you gonna do for act three? Testing the bounds of reality. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Underrated Rotten Movies podcast. We do what it says on the tin. We discuss movies that are great, that are not fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Today I'm joined by Brett Wolfenden, the drummer of The Door Show. Brett, how are you? Thanks, Michael. How are you going? I'm doing very well, thank you. Do you want to tell our listeners what uh, today's movie is? Today's movie is the 1991 Oliver Stone film called The Doors. Is that about a certain Jim Morrison? It could very well be. Definitely. Played by Val Kilmer. Indeed. One of many uh, great aspects of the film. He was fantastic in that film, wasn't he? I think, the, uh, I think in the aftermath... Uh, the members Krieger and Robbie Krieger and John Densmore both said 
that uh, if you if you did an A-B comparison of Jim to Val Kilmer, it was hard to work out who was singing exactly. because Val Kilmer had nailed it. Exactly. And that's high praise because the band members themselves didn't approve of the film. No, not really. Um, Ray Manzarek, the keyboard player, he wasn't involved in any capacity. I think Oliver Stone tried hard to get him help out, but he decided he didn't want to do it and he wasn't happy with the outcome. I think John and Robbie were a little bit more open to it. They liked bits of it and they disliked other parts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is, you know, a totally human reaction. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, So just to provide some context for our listeners, um, because, you know, obviously, you know, modern audience and everything, you know, we're in this this, uh, craze right now, you know, between Green Book, Bohemian Rhapsody, Rocket Man, The Dirt, just music films everywhere. Um, I just wanted to take our listeners back to the early 90s when this movie came out. This was like an event because there weren't many musical biopics around and I just wanted your perspective on what was the hype and the build-up to this movie and its unique position in in cinema at that time. Well, you're actually right. I mean, as far as music biopics go, yes, they have always been around, but definitely back in 91, The Doors was somewhat of an anomaly. I think you can go back to kind of the late 70s, The Coal Miner's Daughter with Sissy Spasic, which was about the life of Loretta Lynn, famous country and western singer. And I think that the rights to the Doors film had been bought by Columbia as early as about 1985, mm. and they ended up passing on it. Uh, Oliver Stone had won an Academy Award for directing Platoon, and that's when a company called Corelco picked up the rights to the Doors, and then they asked Oliver Stone, and everyone was on board except Ray Manzarek to do the film. I think it's interesting because I play in a tribute band called Absolutely Live The Doors Show, as you said, and... I think uh, when it did come out in 91, it, it kind of revitalised everyone's interest in The Doors. The whole brand. Absolutely. So from that end, it can be almost a commercial for the band, can't it, really? Oh, absolutely, yeah. But I feel at the same time, it, it definitely happened with The Doors. Yep. But at the same time, it's not a commercial in the sense that, like, they went for it. It was MA15. It was, as per usual with all of Stone's work, it was hard as nails. Yes. Um, the, the story wasn't streamlined to appeal to a general family audience or anything No, like maybe that. that was a sign of the times. Possibly had of a Queen or Elton John film been done back then, it could have possibly gone a bit harder, but I think that's the lead way that you have with Jim Morrison, is that so much of, of him as a person is mythologised, and, you know, from the Lizard King to the Shaman, and... You can blur the lines with Morrison a bit more because so much of it is myth. Um, for example, what I do like at the start of the film is when Jim's in the car with his parents and he sees the car accident on the road and the Native American and the Native Americans, and of course Morrison as the beat poet, he intertwined a similar lyric into a song called "The End," which we all know very well. And that's what I do like about that film and why... Because I'm not a massive biopic, music biopic fan. I can watch other biopics because I'm not as invested or Mm. I don't really... Like, if I watched a Stephen Hawking biopic, well, then I'd just watch it and I'd enjoy it because I don't know anything about him. But I think with music, it's a bit different. But the Doors film is one of those rare films where I can watch it and appreciate it. I can still see the flaws, but... 
I think it's because of someone, the calibre of Oliver Stone making that film and writing the film that makes it work. In that sequence where the young Jim sees the car accident and the native Indians, then it cuts to the adolescent Jim or just, you know, the 19, 20-year-old Jim there hitchhiking his way to Los Angeles and then there's a nice little cut of his shoes getting into a car but you can see a lizard on the ground as well, just those small little tokenistic things because there's a lot of tokenisms in Jim Morrison as well. So, yeah, I think from that end, that's what, that's what I think makes the film so good. I mean, it, it was criticised because Ray Manzarek saw the film and he said he didn't like the fact that it insinuated that Jim always had a bottle in his hand. Well, yeah, may, maybe not, but, I mean, we all knew he was an alcoholic anyway, so, I mean, that, all he's doing is just pushing that because there's that side of him, there's the obsessed with death side of him, which they really do overplay. But, I mean, in, in all his lyrics, it's all there. He's constantly talking about death. So you can make that A to B assumption, whereas it's a little bit more cut and dry with Elton John and Freddie Mercury because you have to dig deep to look at the, at the darkness as well if you want to portray that or not, whereas with Morrison it's a lot easier to do that because... There it's no all on the surface. Yeah. It's in his lyrics. It's in his behaviour. Well, I think that's what's interesting. You know, when you mention Oliver Stone, I think the films that we're discussing, Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocketman, they're very much studio films. And I think that's what's interesting, especially to revisit The Doors, is it's not a studio film at all. It is a man's vision, that man Oliver Stone. Absolutely. You know, not afraid, you, know you see it throughout his work. He takes a stance. He's not afraid to offend stands by every word, especially with The Doors, like he hits that balance between theatrical and and realistic, mm. whereas it seems like you have to either choose realistic or theatrical. Maybe it's got to do a little bit with the times that we live in now because it seemed odd to me with Bohemian Rhapsody that there wasn't more of a focus on, on Freddie's actual personal life, which was... And I can see why you wouldn't want to go that way because, you know, you've got young people watching it the homosexual element could have been addressed more because that was... I mean, it's not a film about Freddie Mercury in the same that The Doors shouldn't just be a film about Jim Morrison, but you always gravitate towards the front men. And, I mean, in the case of all three, Jim Morrison, Elton John and Freddie Mercury, their stories are the most talked about anyway, so it only seems natural to just go in that direction. Yeah, but maybe it's just a sign of the times now, whereas back then you could get away with a lot more. But it's funny, with Rocketman, the Elton John film, he actually told them that he wanted more of the darkness in the film, mm. that there wasn't enough and you need to put more of that in. And if I was Elton, I'd probably do that as well because, I mean, look, at the end of the day, he survived it. If they're worried about it being, you know, an advertisement for drug-taking and mass orgies, swinging in gay clubs and all that stuff, well, then maybe not. But, I mean, it's what happened... In, in one scene, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in one scene. But My point with that is just, obviously, I wasn't alive during the time, and that's why I value your perspective. But it hey, I'm not that old, Michael. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it seems like Freddie Mercury Queen biopic had happened at the time, like mm. if it had accompanied the Freddie Mercury tribute concert. Yep. I really do feel like people would have, especially because that was the Yeah, that would have been fine. The yeah. AIDS awareness and all that kind of stuff, yeah. where you go, okay, if they, if... Bohemian Rhapsody was exactly the same, and it came out at that time. You know, people would have been furious about how dare you downplay, uh, you know, his sexuality and mm. how dare you change history because, you know, similar criticisms mm. were levelled at the doors. Or how dare you change anything? Yeah. And then, yeah, and now we seem to live in a time where it's like, 
people don't know these these historical elements, and it's like you give them the songs, you give them a good performance. Yeah, possibly, but I think nice. I think then when Freddie died, people actually really didn't know. But I think now, I mean, it's been established over a number of years, and maybe that's why when the Doors film was made then, as well, all of that stuff had yeah, that really distance, come yeah. come out by that time. I think in the early eighties, Ray Manzarek really started to push the whole mythology of Jim Morrison and the shaman aspect, which really Ray dined on until the day he died. And see, a lot of people see that as being quite pretentious. That, that's the best thing about the Doors thing back in 91 when that film came out, being in this tribute band called Absolutely Live The Doors with people who are older than me who started the band at the time because I've only been in there for about eight years. Mm. Um, it was perfect timing. Yeah. It, was perf- it was perfect timing and that whole element of the sex, drugs, rock and roll thing was embraced by the public, whereas I wonder how that would be perceived now by, you know, 20-somethings, because we are living in different times. Totally. Well, I think it's interesting because the film Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, was an Oscar darling. It won yes. four Oscars, which is, you know, more than The Good, The Bad and The Ugly won. Yeah. Because <laughs> The Good, The Bad and The Ugly didn't win anything. Yeah. You can take a guess which one's the better film. But my point being, with Bohemian Rhapsody being, you know, this critical darling, winning all these awards, I'm not saying the Academy has to value realism, but it's not realistic at all. No. And then when you go to The Doors, this is a film that is realistic. Mm. The concert sequences feel like they're from a documentary. Mm. And no Oscars. Mm. At all. Mm. Mm. I mean, I don't think Stanley Kubrick even won four Oscars. Exactly. So, Godfather I mean, won three. Like, Yeah. I mean, you look at the films that Oliver Stone made. I mean, he did make a few more biographical films. I mean, he made, made JFK after that as well, remember? Yeah, he made he, JFK. Yeah. He made uh, Nixon. He Nixon, made, that's right. He made Snowden. Yes. So he was on a bit of a roll doing <laughs> that, and it probably started with The Doors, really. Although Platoon, in a way, I mean, he served as well. So well, that's the thing. Plat- is, yeah, Platoon is was semi-autobiographical. Totally, yeah, because Platoon's not a biopic, but no. it's based on his experiences. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even, you know, going back to realism, like, you know, when you look at a film like uh, Wall Street, obviously Gordon Gekko is not a real person. No. But he's real. It's Let's based, just, it's based yeah. on, yeah, experiences and people that he's researched. That's kind of what I'm getting at with The Doors versus this current crop is that The Doors is more like an indie film. And then with, with Rocket Man and with Bohemian Rhapsody, they made this decision to be like, we want a tentpole, we want a family film. Mm. You say The Doors is an indie film, but it costs $32 million. Mm. So you, which at the time was a lot of Which money. was a lot of money. So, yeah, it's an indie film in... That, that's the power that Oliver Stone has, is that he can make an indie film for $32 Complete million. Complete creative dollars. control. Complete yeah. creative control. So one of the main aspects of, of the show, of this program is we look at the criteria being Rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. Yep. I like to look at reviews that have been published on Rotten Tomatoes that, you know, contribute to that Rotten score. And, yeah, basically I just want to look at how fair it is. So I'm just going to read some some pull quotes sure. from reviews and then we can discuss how this is either a fair criticism or an unfair criticism. Sure. Stone's attempts at penetrating Morrison's public personality are limited to a sepia-toned flashback to the singer's childhood in which young Jim witnesses a wounded Indian. See, that's we were talking about me liking that scene before. It's just a nice image, whether it happened or not, because that opening scene really sets the film up for all of the, the licence that Oliver Stone has. I mean... It goes down some surreal pathways. It does, and, but it does it in a way that, is kind, of, that kind of works. 
because it's all there in all the lyrics he wrote anyway. And also, Morrison himself was someone who built up his own myth. It's in the film as well, where he's telling someone, my, both my parents died. Uh, well, they never did. So I like that because it, it, it belies the idea that oh, what we're watching here, tr the truth as he saw it or, or something that really happened. So I think that's pretty unfair. I, I mean, you could do a hell of a lot worse than that. Yeah, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. I do feel, though, uh, it's a fair criticism in the sense that the movie doesn't do a lot to humanise Jim Morrison. It, it's very much... And it goes back to uh, what you were saying before about, you know, perpetuating the myth where mm. it's not like, well, this is... You know, it, it's not a movie about the real Jim Morrison because what is the real Jim Morrison? But, but then maybe that's... But see, to me, that's essentially what you can do with a film like that that you can't do with Freddie Mercury or Elton John because so much of what happened with Morrison has been has been mythologised anyway. I mean, you, you know, you, you can't definitively say that Morrison was this or he was this. I feel like it kind of, it works. He's humanised, but I don't know if he's humanised in a way that, that is negative or positive. Mm. There were certainly aspects of him that weren't nice. That's where you have the dichotomy of whether you, you go for the nice or you go for the ugly. Exactly. Because that's the thing with the Freddie and Elton stuff is how do you get the balance right? I think definitely Oliver Stone chose to go down the dark path and steer it there and keep it there. Um, it was a conscious decision. It sure. was. But I mean, that the way that his life ended anyway, it obviously ended very young. Way too young. And, and he died of an overdose. Uh, Pamela Curson, played by Meg Ryan, they weren't very happy with the way that had been portrayed. And the Curson family were involved because after... Pam died because she only died a couple of years after Jim. They, because obviously Jim didn't acknowledge his parents' existence, uh, she had all of his poetry and the Curson estate got to keep all the poetry and there was a little bit of a trade-off between Oliver Stone and the Curson family and they said, well, you, you portray our daughter properly and or to our liking and we'll give you access to all the poetry. So you see at the start of the film when he's reading the American Prayer stuff because it has come to light since that, that Pam was responsible for giving him the drugs that killed him, and she openly acknowledged that prior to her death, but they didn't want her being portrayed as being the one that... Because she just walks into the room and he's dead. I thought, I thought that was very interesting at the time. Yeah, definitely. What I find interesting about movies like this, characters like Jim Morrison, is it's that likability where it's not actually liking them like you couldn't imagine sitting down and having a beer with them but you still like them in the sense that you admire them mm. you go wow look at that that talent you know like, like i really like characters like that where you don't actually like them per se but they're that smart or gifted or charismatic well, well morrison was an anomaly and i mean that's why he's such a good subject for a film anyway because what the film does is it portrays this person who... And he'll do what he wants when he wants. Now, very few people can do that. It is, which they show in the film, him quitting UCLA film school. And then Ray happened to be in the same class. And they were sitting on the beach. And Ray's told the story a million times. So it's pretty much bang on. Where he says, I've written this song. And then he just says, Moonlight... He sings the lyrics to Moonlight Drive to Ray. And Ray says, well, I've got this kind of band. Would you be interested in getting involved? And the thing is, is Jim Morrison was tone deaf. He couldn't play guitar. He didn't know what chords were.
but he just wrote and he was one of those very few people that can open their mouth and think that they're singing and actually sing, um, which makes Jim Morrison quite extraordinary. Someone who was able to build himself into a character. You know, I mean, Freddie was good at it and so was Elton John. They were all very good at it, but they had, they had very strong musical talent in a different way that Jim Morrison did. So that's why Jim's also a very just an anomaly. There aren't many that, that got to where Jim got to being what he was. It defies logic, really. It does defy logic. You know, it really does. Totally. Yeah. Uh, so moving on to the next criticism. The battle for Jim's soul is played out as it might have been in a 1930s cartoon with the women taking the place of the little angel and devil figures whispering in Jim's ear. Right. I mean, it does play out a bit like that, does it? For the sake of the movie. So you think that's an unfair criticism? Yes, yeah, I think there's no way to get around that. Yeah, because, you couldn't. Because he has two strong opposing figures in his life. The other woman, she was, she was just one of hundreds of women that he slept with at that point in time. She represents the hundreds of women that Jim slept with. Just Patricia. Then. Patricia. Like, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, either that or you just make the film about Jim having sex with un- hundreds of different women. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, well, I mean, Patricia's just fallen. Like, yeah, she's fallen. Have you ever drank human blood? And, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The yeah. whole, the ritual that's accompanied yeah. by Ofatuna and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Well, like, see, I think, I mean, again, that to me is like, that's the artistic licence of mm. Oliver Stone, but it plays into that idea that Morrison is this mythological shaman and that, and that he does anything and, and he's got this spiritual vibe about him, really. And how much of it is true, I'm not entirely sure, but... Again, it's just building up this notion that Morrison was this spiritual, mythological person that could do anything and, you know, even his death was mythological because, you know, of the native Indians and, you know, that... Jim Morrison sightings and... and that, yeah, yeah. It works for that because Jim Morrison is almost like you know, a fictional character in a book you could make it out to be. Totally. Very, very rare. Very rare. Totally. Obviously, just because something is a is common storytelling technique doesn't mean it's the way it always has to be. No. But just to compare it to another property, uh, there's a show on Netflix called uh, Narcos. Yep. It's the exact same thing where you go, okay, well, in the show, Narcos, Pablo Escobar has a wife and family and he has a mistress. Obviously, you go, oh, well, you know, he was sleeping with all kinds of women and this and that. But what that would look like on screen is who is this character? Where do they come from? they don't come back into the story. because, no. And that's not a satisfying narrative. You wouldn't have time. And I feel like the same thing would have happened to the door. You have the light and the shade, and you have yeah. definitive light and yeah. shade. If you didn't, it would just be like random moments of light, of random course. moments of shade. It all needs to tie together. It would overwhelm the senses, really. There's the fight scene with Patricia and Pam, which never happened as well. Apparently, Pam was always very courteous to Patricia when she saw her. There, there was never any calling out of anyone. I mean, that had to be done. The narrative needed that arc, didn't it? Totally. It needed it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's why I feel it's an unfair criticism. And, right. Yeah, I'm glad we're on the same page. Yep. Uh, this one, I think, is particularly unfair. Battering the audience with the ritual repetition of the four-letter word that appears to be both Stone's and Morrison's favourite unit of expression. <laughs> well. This what? is how people talk. That's ridiculous. It's yeah. like... It's, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Totally. I mean, and th- this happens, a, like, doing research for this program, this happens a lot, where there's critics who just complain about profanity mm. and, you know, what they label as indecency. Here's this critic complaining about 
strong language. Well, that's what that writing allows you, strong language. Of course, and also, I mean, if you're travelling in those circles where it's all alcohol and drugs and, and anything goes, I mean, of course, there's going to be profanity. Exactly. That's just, that's just, that's a, that's a realism, isn't it? When you're in that state of mind, when you're in that world, you're not going to be eloquent no. and well-spoken no. and composed, like, it's just not how it is. Like, no, absolutely not. It, it, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't think, because I feel like if they had done that, which obviously I'm glad they didn't, but I feel like if they had done that, then the criticism would have been, what's with all these drunk people that are completely yeah. composed and... This is a separate criticism. Much of the screenplay plods along in a surprisingly ordinary way, parading us through the ups and downs of Morrison's career as if everything that happened to this guy was automatically fascinating. Well, you're cherry-picking if you're making a film, so you are picking the best moments, aren't you? I don't know whether that's a fair statement. I, um, I personally don't. Yeah. He is fascinating. Mm. Like, that's why they made the film, yeah. is that essentially everything that the public knows about him... Mm. Is fascinating. It's all there, and that's all. You, and that's all you can really mm. do, you know. But because, like, he he did things in the general public that made news headlines, and then people tend to think, well, you know, I can see him doing that. I mean, obviously, the the Miami incident where he allegedly got his penis out. I mean, I mean, he was in court, and he was very, very worried that they were going to lock him up for that. It was the it was when really the decline started. He got a mugshot out of it. He got a mugshot out of it. Axel Rose wears that as a T-shirt. Yeah, on yeah, stage. yeah. For him to have gone to that extreme, you kind of think to yourself, "There's not much this guy probably wouldn't do if he if he actually could." You can read all these books and read these stories and think, "Yeah, but did that really happen?" But a lot a lot of it has been verified. I mean, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. I mean, Ray Manzarek, the keyboard player, you know, he really built the Jim thing up. And in 1981, there was a very interesting cover of the Rolling Stone. That's what it is. Jim Morrison, he's hot, he's sexy, and he's dead. And that's when it really started from about 81 onwards. No One Gets Out of Here, a live book came out by the ex-manager. And, yeah, that's when it all really went into overdrive. So that's why I reckon around that 85 time, Columbia Pictures wanted to do a Doors film because obviously... The momentum started. The, this is the stories. This will make a good film. So, I mean, all you want to do in a film like that is put in all those great stories because there's so many of them. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like you said, you're the drummer in... I'm the drummer. ...in yep. the Doors show. So I would just... I'd like to get your perspective as a, as a fellow musician. Mm. How do you feel the music is used in the film? Because, like I said earlier, the concert sequences feel like mm. they're from a documentary. Um, do you feel like... I think it's really used exceptionally well. And, and in fact, I think there are certain songs that are used in there that have since become favourites for audiences more just because of the film. Because a song like Love Street, which, I don't know, maybe wasn't thought of that highly, but because it was in the film and it's used fairly early on when Jim sees Pam on the veranda with her current boyfriend and then he climbs up while he's ducked off and he gives her a kiss and when the song plays there that certainly from my experience of playing with the band as well as what they told me from when they were doing it in 92 93 was that they often would get requests for that which surprised them um i think the music's used extremely well because i think they use a good broad section of doors material they don't just go for the jugular songs which i would say with bohemian rhapsody i think they just use the obvious songs you know which it's a perfect time to not use every obvious song mm. because you're reeling real people more by playing a few of the 
the lesser known tracks off certain records that are really good because then you really get people interested in them. Totally. Because I mean that's the thing when that Queen rec- when that Queen film came out, greatest hits went like straight back up to number one. But it's like yeah, but that's just that's easy. You know, totally. That's you yeah. Know, you want the honour to get an old back catalogue. You know. Hmm. Well, it's it's one of those things where that that's and that's kind of what I was getting at when I said does does the film utilise the musical? Because in my opinion, a film like Bohemian Rhapsody really doesn't because. No. You have this amazing song like "Under Pressure" yeah. featuring David Bowie. Yeah. It, it's playing, and Freddie's sitting on his couch and watching TV. Mm. Yeah. And then, whereas with the Doors, um, Oliver Stone treats the music as if it is majestic, like yeah. it's it's used appropriately. You never cringe when a so- door song's played in that film either. You don't. No. You never think that's inappropriate. It's all bang on. He was also coming from the place of being a big fan as well, and because he wrote it, and again, it comes back to you know having the the power is another real asset for the, for that film. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I would love to talk about Oliver Stone, like how he brought himself to the movie. Like mm. it's it's his style, it's his vision, yeah. it's his tone. Oliver Stone definitely made that. You know, Ray Manzarek had one three hour sit down with Oliver Stone, and they just could not agree on anything after Ray read the script. So Ray chose to. Not being involved, project, yeah. yeah, and he got out of there. Whereas Robbie and John hung around, and I think John Densmore said one of the criticisms he had, and I mean jo- John Densmore wrote a very good book too. He's the drummer from the Doors. He he often referred to, and this was all in retrospect, that he was getting very disenchanted with Jim, and there'd been arguments about kind of his behaviour and him going off the rails. But um, you know, there hadn't been conversations with Jim. Um, to say, you know, come on, man, pull back, it's all about the music type thing. And I think his criticism was that he never really said that. That was just something that was then said or presented, uh, which didn't happen. So that was one of his criticisms about it. Because he said plenty of that afterwards, but not at the time. Mm. Um, Yeah, so I I think for the most part, Robbie Krieger liked the film. He was the guitar player who wrote a lot lot of the big songs as well. Um, so, I mean, I think in that respect, Oliver Stone got it right. I think Robbie Krieger also liked the way that all the gigs were portrayed as well. He thought that you couldn't have done it much better than that. Going back to that documentary feel, even beyond that, it feels like you are there. Mm. It's like you can smell mm. the arena, you know what I mean? Like, well, it was like a precursor. I mean, and this is the thing too. When you watch the arena sequence, it was nice to see real people in the audience and there's actually quite a lot. Absolutely. It's not like there isn't a lot. Um, you can like even see in the back that it's all really people that are there. I guess if you're going to talk about great rock and roll films based on the person who wrote it and directed it, you can't really go past Almost Famous. Even though that's fictional, it's based on Cameron Crowe's experiences from 14 years and up. It's an amazing movie. And it's a great film. It's all about trying to bring a level of authenticity to it, but which is what Oliver Stone did. Um, and, I mean, that's the thing that's hard to watch with Bohemian Rhapsody because clearly you can't recreate Live Aid, but... Yeah, the crowd, they don't look like real people. Nah. It doesn't feel real. There's no sweat, there's no tears, nah. there's no scars in any of these people. And the difference with the doors being you feel like you are in that crowd. Yes. And, you know, when they gasp and when they cheer <coughs> and everything, you know, you're doing that too. Yeah. The way that that benefits the movie is you really feel the weight yes. of the situation. Because, yeah. again, when you're watching Queen and you're like, yeah, Queen, and then you're distracted by this CGI crowd, it takes you out of it. Whereas with The Doors, it being a real crowd, you feel the impact of, yeah, all these real people um, are impacted by The Doors. They're motivated by The Doors. They're captivated by them. Well, really, that's just an allegory 
for the difference between old filmmaking and modern filmmaking is totally. that everything's a computer game now. Totally. And a lot of the soul gets left behind and it's all really just about... Manufacturing. Manufacturing. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it probably is a good representation. You know, you have a movie, in terms of Stone's canon, you have a movie like Natural Born Killers, which is... Love that film, man. Yeah, it's terrific, isn't it? Um, I could get to that on this show. Uh, but, you know, he... It's very exaggerated. It was co- co-written by Quentin oh, Tarantino. Of course it yeah. was, yeah. Totally. And so it's very much that style. Yeah. The other extreme of that with Oliver Stone is Platoon, which is hard as nails, gritty. Mm. This was Vietnam and I went through it. And, you know, you really feel the realism of the situation. That, that's the magic of The Doors is that he somehow bridged Bridges. those two yeah, worlds. Yeah. No, I agree with that. Where he rides that line between this is theatrical, it's a production, I'm going to take liberties, mm. but I'm also going to make you feel like you are there and you're watching real people and it's believable mm. at the same time. Like, I'd agree with all of that, yeah. That I mean, alchemy is just yeah. is just striking. I mean, I'm not a massive fan of b- music biopics, as I was saying earlier, mm. but um, that is one that I can watch and, and appreciate. There are so many others that I can't and I'm just picking holes in it left, right and centre. Totally. So, I mean, that's a testament to Oliver Stone, I think. Now, a hallmark of just any true story movie is, you know, you get the big star to play the big star, mm. and in this case, we have Val Kilmer mm. playing Jim Morrison. Well, Val Kilmer was relatively new at that point in time. Absolutely, I think this the, was his breakthrough. It was his breakthrough. I think the reason he got the film was because uh, he'd been seen in Willow, uh, which was a great George Lucas film. Happened to love that film. If you haven't seen it, so. yeah, I think he took that role pretty seriously too. I believe he sent Oliver Stone like an eight-minute uh, reel of him playing the different Jim Morrisons. Um, from from the skinny, long haired to kind of the bearded, fatter Morrison, with all of the, um, with all of those, you know, idiosyncratic moves. As as audience goers, we do have a perception of the of the artist, and if it's not played correctly, then it so much of it hinges on that performance, and that's what Val Kilmer does in that. He just nails it. And John Den- Densmore and Robbie Krieger actually said, if you did an AB comparison couldn't really tell who was Morrison and whether that this was really Jim or that was Val. Totally. And I think he learnt, like, 50 songs of which he only was required to, like, I think sing on maybe 10 or 12 of them. But um, he definitely put the work in. Well, I mean, speaking of the singing, you know, what I find interesting about that is that's usually a distraction in a musical biopic is you're so used to the voice and, and all of these songs and then when you hear a different voice, you know, of course you respect the actor for going to that, that effort. Yep. But it's not... It takes you out of it because you go, oh, I'm watching a movie. What is fascinating about Val Kilmer and The Doors is not only does he capture, you know, the physical mannerisms and, you know, it takes on that whole persona, but he sounds like Jim Morrison. He really does. I mean, he, he nailed every aspect... Um, which you very rarely see. Um, actually, there was a great film from 1979 called The Buddy Holly Story. That's right. Which was Gary Busey, and he was one of the only other artists or actors who got pretty close because um, it's a terribly daunting thing to have to do. And, I mean, R- Rami Malik. I mean, these things, that that when it all comes together like that, a hell of a lot of luck's involved. Totally. So, I mean, getting Val, again, that's just another reason why the film works on another level. Because maybe it wouldn't have if Val Kilmer 
wasn't close enough to Morrison. Exactly. We might have we might have just looked at the Jim Morrison and gone, I'm not really buying this. Exactly. So, yeah, that was pretty lucky. <laughs> Definitely. And, um, I mean, he's a huge – he makes – I mean, he's extraordinary in that film, Val Kilmer. He really is. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's bang on. It really is. It's, even in the sequence where they actually got it um, historically wrong, where Patricia is taking iconic photos of Morrison with the shirt off where he's gazing right into the – to the camera, she never took those photos. It was an American male who mm. took them for a for a paper. But I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, that wasn't her. Um, even when he's doing that sequence, it's like you think it's Jim because he's got the shoulders and it, like that kind oh, of exactly that the same, look. Yeah. That look where he's kind of staring through the camera as well. Yeah, um, I actually I like that scene though. Oh, it's a good scene because for me that was the moment in the narrative where you know because that's what she's telling him is. Yeah. You're the star. They yes, like yes. you. You don't need the other guys. And it that's good exposition, though. though I totally. like that. Yeah. You know, it, it has to be. Accompanied that. by the music, and it's all... It, it's cre- it's yeah. like I said, the exposition's presented in, in a creative way. Yes. And that goes back to the music being utilised really well. Well, it's created, in, it's created in a healthy way, too, because the thing that I do find very difficult about music biopics, and one of the worst ones is called The Beach Boys in American Family. It's on YouTube. It's an absolute shocker. <laughs> but, it, but like, the exposition is all done in this really very obvious way where it's like they've almost listened to interviews in, that have been done and just a long time them. and just yeah. transcribed it. So when Mike loves talking about good vibrations, as he says in the interviews, he goes, I, wa- I want to write a song about, uh, about girls and... Uh, and, and vibrations and uh, you know it's all it's all so so badly done. You've got to see it. It's on YouTube. It's a two-parter. It's it is an absolute train wreck. Fair enough. It's called the Beach Boys and American Fan. We're talking about exposition and the way that in music biopics it's it's demonstrated, and the Doors that example being a very good example of exposition. I mean, if you look at something like Bohemian Rhapsody. Where it's really bad is in the sequence where he's explaining what he's hearing in Bohemian, like in the in the take of Bohemian Rhapsody and how he wants it to be. I mean, definitely, that's completely ridiculous. Yeah. Like he certainly had an idea of what he wanted, but I mean, he didn't know, you know. But then they they just make it so literal. It kind of ruins the whole point of experimentation. It, yeah. yeah. I, what I love about it too is them recording the song sounds like the finished product. So, for me, what I like about it is that it's that point in the narrative where it's not that it justifies his behaviour, but it makes you go, you understand it. You go, oh, he's acting like that because she's f- fueling his head with ideas that he can do anything he wants. Of course. He's the star attraction. Yeah. Um, behaviour like that, it, it makes more sense when you understand why someone would feel that way or feels they can get away with it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's one of my favourite scenes in the movie. I mean, the, I mean, he had the famous line at the end of not, not to touch the earth, which is, I'm the lizard king, I can do anything. I mean, that in itself is... It's just an entire... That's a, that's his creation. Exactly. I, just to back away from the praise for a moment, Yeah. do you think that there are parts of the movie that are, like, hard to watch where you kind of go, wow, this guy has really let himself go and... It's too bad no one's there to pick up the pieces. Mm. and Yeah. In that sense, do you think it can be a frustrating watch at times? Yeah, but, I mean, that was his life. Oh, absolutely. And that was his 
be- his behaviour. Absolutely. Um, but just as an ex- like, just as yeah, the experience yeah. of watching. Yeah, the movie. I mean that's why he's such a good character to write about because it's all there. There's all of, there's all of that anguish and and darkness, which is why you you can make a film like that about him. Do you think that the movie, speaking of all like the lifestyle and the fact that they didn't tone it down, which obviously I'm glad they didn't tone it down. But what is your interpretation of the glamorization of it? Because for me, watching The Doors, I'm not sure if it's like condoning it or if it's making it look really fun and sexy. Yes, and there is the uh, there is the dilemma. Well, I guess that's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? And I think there would have been a little bit of that when making the Queen film, is they would have been worried about what they were glamorising and what they weren't. But we're living in a different time now. Mm. The, when that film, when The Doors came out, really it was like grunge was on the horizon and you got a lot of disenfranchised kids. And, you know, rock and totally. roll was still the predominant music form. I, I like it. I like it all. I mean, it doesn't mean you have to live your life like that, but... No, absolutely but not. Do not, mean, Listeners, do not die. No, no, no. I'm not, I, I don't know, I'm not suggesting that at all. You know, but no, again, like I said uh, earlier, yeah. you know, striking that right balance. Yeah, is that, the key. That is the key. Totally. Yeah. So, just to finish up, yep. the theme of the show, the title of the show, do you recommend this movie? Is it an underrated, rotten movie? I, think, I mean, I was, you know, what, maybe 91. I was probably like 12 when it when I, f- I first saw it. And, yeah, I think it's aged pretty well. I only saw it recently again. And it holds I, up. And it does hold up. Yeah, I think it holds up as something worth watching and I would recommend it. But again, if you're, if you're younger now and you're, you're growing up, I wonder how you would perceive that. I'm not sure. Um, I'd certainly suggest to anyone young to have a look at it and, uh, and see if you like it. And it is a very full-on film. Definitely. Well, uh, thank you, Mr Wolfenden. Michael, absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Had a blast. No worries. This was another episode of Underrated Rotten Movies. See you next time. You've been listening to a Sin podcast from sin.org.au. Hope you liked it.